Hi, welcome to Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. What will you be eating in 10 years' time? The next decade might not see our diets change too drastically, but as we continue to farm, dredge, and exploit the planet of its natural resources, it's very likely that some of the foods we have grown to love and rely on to fill our tummies will come in smaller and smaller supply. Today, a show from one of our partner programs, Think Digital Futures, about getting creative and finding sustenance in places you probably wouldn't expect, where the thought of eating some might make you squirm. Here's producer Shane Anderson. So is there anything that we eat now that maybe Australians in the 1950s and 40s would have looked at and just been bewildered? I think it's probably more the other way around. I think we would be very bewildered if someone put a plate of tongue in front of us. This is Jackie Nooling, resident gastronomer with Sydney Living Museums. It's Jackie's job to recreate recipes from historical Australian cookbooks. But as a gastronomer, she's interested in more than just how the food tastes. I'm particularly more interested in why we eat what we eat and why we don't eat what we don't eat and what informs those decisions. This episode is about the food we don't eat and how that's going to have to change if we want enough food in the future. It's also about the people who are trying to change those tastes. Some of them are looking forward, developing new ways to create foods that make the most of our resources. Others, like Jackie, are finding inspiration from the past. Because when you look at the history of our taste buds, especially in post-invasion Australia, you don't have to go very far back to find foods you can't possibly imagine on the dinner table. It's something Jackie found out pretty early in her career. So this was quite early in my career as the colonial gastronomer. I was working out at Vaucluse House. Vaucluse House is this big old estate in Sydney and walking in there feels like stepping into a scene from the mid-1800s. And it was in preparation for a butchery demonstration at Vaucluse House that Jackie was scouring through cookbooks, searching for recipes that encapsulated that period in Australian history. And all the cookbooks from that time have mock turtle soup. Mock turtle, as the name suggests, doesn't have turtle in it. Instead, it has something arguably worse. They have a calf's head and they have whole tongue. There's the brains which you serve in a herbed butter sauce. (laughs) Sorry for all the vegetarians out there. But, you know, these were on people's tables. I thought, well, they're not things that you see every day. I think it's my duty to replicate those. And that's exactly what Jackie set about to do. Hey, I'm Shane Anderson, and this is How to Boil a Calf's Head. First, you get the calf's head from the butcher. And he had to order it directly from the abattoir. It took about a month. Then you have to clean it. And cut it in half and take off the ears. Next, you wrap it in muslin so everything stays in one place. Then you basically put it in water with some aromatic herbs and onion, celery to make a stock. You'll need to use a 30-litre pot at this stage. This won't fit on your conventional stovetop. You'll need to put this one on the barbecue. And you, you poach it. You don't boil the crap out of it. You know, you want it to cook it gently. And when it's ready? The meat starts to fall from the bone. 
I didn't know how to get the wretched thing out of the pot. It's quite big, you know, sort of bigger than a bar, or the size of a big football. Then, of course, the pot was so high on the stove that I had to stand on a, a little step ladder to, to sort of retrieve it and plonk it into a bowl that my son had to hold with his eyes closed because he <laughs> couldn't stand the thought of looking at the thing. It, it wasn't pretty. And how did it taste? Just like boiled meat, but yeah. You have to get the head from the abattoir, you make your son squeamish, you pluck a big <laughs> calf's head down on the table, and then it just tastes normal. Well, it, yeah, that's right, for all that effort. So when Jackie boiled the calf's head, she had to confront her own feelings of disgust. And she's not alone in being grossed out by the idea of eating the head of an animal. In fact, Jackie thinks that Western food culture in the 21st century has a problem. We're too squeamish. We're very good at removing ourselves from the origin of our food. Back in the 1860s, we used every part of the animal because that's all the food that we had. Nowadays, it's the opposite. In Australia, we have abundance. If someone dropped a calf's head down on your table, chances are you would feel a bit ill. And Jackie says it's not a feeling that most of us can control. We know that calf's head is edible. We know it's not poisonous. It's not going to physically hurt us. But morally, we choose not to eat it. And it's that idea of gust, gusto. It comes from the belly. It comes from that whole idea of of eating something that might contaminate you. Our narrow-minded view of what is food and what's not is taking its toll. Agriculture industries take up a huge amount of land, resources, and account for up to 40% of global carbon emissions. Also, we can eat those wiggly lines of plastic-wrapped mincemeat. Our moral conscience needs to be challenged because we simply can't keep living this way. The global population is booming, our oceans are overfished, even supposed alternatives like almond milk use up too much water to be sustainable. But tech innovators have offered us a solution. They call these future foods. You probably heard about these foods in the kind of listicles you scroll straight past on your newsfeed. Ones that sound a bit like this. This pizza has just been printed. This pizza's just been printed. They printed a pizza at this booth. Yes, we get it. With the exception of 3D printed pizzas that are so slow and expensive it has zero practical value, most of all these so-called future foods aren't all that futuristic. Most of these foods are around us right now. It's just, for some reason, we don't want to eat them. Like algae. So in Australia, we don't really have a tradition of growing algae, so we're kind of starting at the beginning compared to the other countries that have been growing it for such a long time. This is Janice McCauley, a research fellow out of UTS. She works with local biotech companies developing ways to make food products out of algae. We're literally coming to a point with our uh, population boom that this is not enough food to feed the planet. And one of those simply is there's not enough protein. With your average algae holding up to 35% protein content, those slimy mounds of seaweed at the beach could be the solution. And the more researchers like Janice are looking into it, the more they're finding out just how important algae could be to our global food stocks. If you look at a tree of life, you can see that algae dominate. And when we talk about current utilisation of algal species, we're using literally just a handful. The first thing we need to know is that the complex multicellular seaweed at the beach is only the tip of the algae iceberg. 
there is this wealth, thousands of other species that we just don't know. Part of our job is to explore these species to see um, the unique characteristics and what they offer. Thousands of species of Literally, algae. Literally, thousands of species. As a food crop, growing algae makes so much sense. It circumvents the usual requirements for plant crops like arable land and instead uses things that we have loads of. We have lots of sunlight in Australia and we have a lot of unused space. We're not eating into our arable land for our food crop, but we're just adding a new alternative source. Janice works alongside one of the few places in Australia where algae is grown as a commercial crop, at a company called Vena Shell Systems on New South Wales' south coast. The algae here is grown in bioreactors, which are kind of like pools in the ocean. These are grown off-land in large pools. Literally looks like a swimming pool. Swimming pool after swimming pool with this beautiful green algae growing in it. They're also good for the environment because of their nutrient-stripping properties. Put them in a body of water that's very high in nutrients. So this is generally polluted waters. Algae have this ability to strip all those nutrients and convert it into a biomass that we can then utilise. So it cleans polluted waterways? It does, yes. Janice calls this a closed ecosystem, meaning unlike cattle that you have to look after and feed and wheat that you have to maintain the crop year-round, algae can sustain itself in a closed environment. So not only is it good for our waterways, that protein content means it's a great substitute for meat protein. Uh, Had you eaten much algae before you started research in this area? No. I think the sushi roll uh, was uh, my limit of my algal consumption. So did you have any expectations going into it? Yes. The one I've tasted is the green seaweed species that's grown at Nowra. It's got a very potent taste, but I, I like it. It's one of those that people eat like coriander. Do you like it or you hate it? It's one of those distinct flavours. Like Vegemite, Brussels sprouts and fairy floss, algae is a divisive food. We're mostly turned off by our perceptions of algae as seaweed, but these visible algae aren't the ones companies are working with to turn into food. They're working with single-cell algae to extract the nutritional content. So in this case, our perceptions of the food are quite far from the reality of the work people like Janice are doing. And so to challenge some of these misconceptions, Janice brought a couple of these products along and we decided to do some taste testing, in which we were quickly joined by Think Sustainability's Jake Morecambe as a kind of impartial third judge. I've brought in a taste tester. This is Jake. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And what have you got for us first? First up was the algae corn chips, or CCs. They look exactly how your average corn chips look, except for one thing. They're bright green. Its ingredients are corn, canola oil, and fica green, which is 100% Australian farmed seaweed that's grown uh, sustainably in Nara, so locally, um, and some salt. All right. Ooh, yum. Let's see how we go. Okay, right. Okay, ready? That's really nice. Mm. I really like that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like a mild corn, corn chip. Mm. That's good. Next, we try the seaweed protein snacks. Mm. And so we have a FICO bite with seaweed protein, cranberries, and macadamia nuts. So this yeah. is kind of our version of a protein bar. These bars look like small, dark green bites. Um, We can use special drying and extraction techniques to minimise the flavour as well, to boost protein content. Jenna says they use these extraction techniques to put seaweed in practically any food. Oh, yum. 
Okay, thank you. Okay. Oh, I can smell the seaweed on this okay. one. Okay. Right, okay. Oh. It's a stronger flavour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one tastes a lot more like seaweed, but crunchy seaweed. Mm. The protein bites had a stronger flavour to the algae chips. We devoured the chips after the recording, but there was something about the saltiness of the bites that reminded us a little bit too much of the sea. So we hit our limit with something that tasted a little bit too much like the ocean. But how far do our tastes as a culture really stretch? Mealworms are really great. They've got a really nutty, woody flavour. Meet Olympia Yaga. Around Canberra, people say, oh, you're the lady with the maggots. She earned this nickname after launching a startup called GoTerra, which is an insect farm. And this farm doesn't just cultivate maggots. We farm all three types of the main insects, so black soldier fly, cricket and mealworm. And we do grow our crickets for human consumption. When it comes to future foods, nothing quite screams the future like a plate full of creepy crawlies. That is, despite the fact around 2 billion of the world's population already eat insects as part of their usual diet in the present. But in Western cultures, there's just something really gross about it. Olympia says that you can't knock it until you've tried it. Crickets are potentially one of the most delicious things in food. You're going to have to convince me. I know, right? When when you say that, everyone's like, "Uh uh-huh. But truly has the same consistency dehydrated or roasted as a prawn cracker but with this absolutely beautiful legume flavor and they're moorish they're the right amount of crunch so you can't stop chewing on them the insects farmed at goterra aren't only for human consumption selling insects as dinner in australia surprise surprise is a tough sell the main operation of olympia's business is using insects as food for livestock It's estimated we're going to need a 60% increase in grain production by 2050 in order to feed not only humans but livestock as well, so chickens, cows, pigs. This 60% increase isn't a realistic target. We are going to need alternate sources of protein. Olympia sees this as a challenge. So can insects fill that gap and provide adequate and comparable protein to include in our livestock feed diet? Olympia first stumbled upon insects as farm food when she was trying to start a sustainable farm herself. You know, free-range chickens and do a a hydroponic aquaponic system. And I couldn't find feed that fit into that model that was sustainable and affordable. So I started looking around. Olympia hit up Google. It was there she discovered the black soldier fly. It was the perfect solution, but the idea at first took some getting used to. I, I just couldn't get my mind wrapped around what being a fly farmer would be like, and it just felt like too much of a stretch. But the longer you look at the capabilities of a black soldier fly, you just get really excited about it. Now, black soldier flies aren't your average house fly. Unless you're an avid gardener, you might have never seen one. A uh, black soldier fly looks more like a wasp. It's quite long in its body and it's on trees or leaves or walls. It sits in a very 
uniform way with other soldier flies. There's no commercial black soldier fly farms out there. Olympia had to build one from scratch. It involves setting traps in friends' backyards to capture the flies to begin the farm. Flash forward a few years, and now Olympia's running a commercial operation. What was once a bunch of fly aviaries in her sunroom is now a warehouse. The black soldier fly larvae make for nutritious livestock feed, and with 42% protein content, they also make a great human food. Yet there's still something holding us back from seeing black soldier flies as a meal. I haven't tried a black soldier fly. I'm still too Australian to give that a go. (laughs) Uh, I find it really interesting, actually, that even though you work with lots of different insects, you were still squeamish when it came to eating them. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Again, it's absolutely the cultural unconscious bias. And, And we've done that to ourselves generationally from a young age. Don't eat that. It's got a bug on it. Fly's bad. Get that fly off your food, you know. Whether we like it or not, some some pretty strong changes are going to start taking place in our food system. The climate is changing so dramatically and it's hard to manage production when you can't predict what the weather's going to be like. It's really tempting to think about this sort of magic pill or this magic concept of future food. This is Judy Friedlander. I'm a researcher with the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology. Judy says when it comes to future foods, the real tech innovators are people like Janice and Olympia, people using the resources we already have. So future food, ironically, moves us back to moving away from high tech and thinking more about mimicking our natural systems. What Judy means is that we treat the foods we eat now as a kind of one-way relationship with the environment – Farmers raise animals, we send them to the abattoir, then they're divided into plastic wrap packets we buy from the supermarkets. This has a huge toll on our environment, and it's this way of thinking that has made our eating habits unsustainable. A circular closed system is about thinking of food as in a kind of feedback loop with our environment, rather than a one-way street. Say you have a system that recycles food waste and chicken manure to feed a worm farm. The worms then feed the chickens and the farmed fish whose bones are used as fertiliser in a market garden. And human waste via, say, a compost toilet also enriches the garden, whose crops, say, together with farm fish and meat and eggs from the chickens, feed the people. That's exactly what Janice and Olympia are doing, finding alternatives to the most damaging food habit we have, eating red meat. Over the last 100 years or so, our consumption of red meat globally has just skyrocketed. Back at the start of this episode in the 1860s, no part of an animal was left untouched. We ate everything. These days, the global population is much higher, and yet we eat much less of the animal. Global meat production drains water supplies, degrades the land, and kills off species diversity. It's estimated that if everybody were to move to vegetarianism, global carbon emissions would be cut by two-thirds. Realistically, this isn't going to happen. But even doing meat-free days or weeks now and then has a substantial environmental impact. And this is where protein alternatives come into the picture. What do you think it will take to change our tastes to convince people to eat less and to eat less red meat? Firstly, of course, we're very much bound by our culture and our faiths and traditions 
And, of course, industry, the meat and livestock lobby, of course, has a lot of influence. A lot of people are employed by that industry. A lot of people eat meat in restaurants. So a wholesale change is really not going to happen. Change happens a little bit at a time. This is where the work of researchers like Janice and farmers like Olympia are just so important. They're developing algae and insects into things that are good. Good for our bodies, good for the environment, and that taste good too. It's not about radically changing the way we eat overnight, but having an algae corn chip here and there, getting used to the flavour and teaching ourselves not to be disgusted at the thought of eating a cricket... Olympia reckons this is what future foods are really all about. That's more what we're looking at, not necessarily as a replacement for or to be instead of, but let's try and fill that gap in production and do it in a sustainable, repeatable way so that we can you know, continue to eat yummy chicken and beautiful fish and have those things available to us into the future. Shane Anderson with that story. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show and are not yet already, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All you need to do is search for Think Sustainability. And also, you can check out the show Shane Produces Think Digital Futures, also available wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a website. You can find out more about the show there, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.